Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Chuck Crumpton, who sold his consultancy business, MedPoint, for around five times EBITDA. But before we get there, during today's episode, Chuck mentioned a tool called the Predictive Index, which he used to find employees who matched the company's culture. Now, I actually found a wonderful article on a hiring strategy that's quite interesting, I think you would enjoy. And I have linked to that blog article in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Chuck, who in 2002 started MedPoint to help businesses bring medical devices and pharmaceuticals to market. Now, early on, Chuck landed a large blue chip client who at one point, as he stated in the episode, made up about 83% of his revenue. Now, during today's episode, I want you to look out for the strategy he implemented to minimize his dependency on that single customer, which ultimately led to the sale of MedPoint in 2020 for around five times EBITDA. Here to share with John the full story is Chuck Crumpton. Enjoy. Chuck Crumpton, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. So good to be with you, man. I've been excited about this conversation. Well, me too. Take me back, Chuck, to the tool shed. Mm. I want to go back to the garage. It's 2002. Tell me the midpoint story. How did you start this business? Well, John, I will say first that uh, I'm incredibly uh, fortunate, incredibly blessed to have met good people in my life. And I go back to those early days of MedPoint. I was really, really fortunate. Uh, I didn't come out of a healthcare background, but I had the, uh, the real privilege of meeting people in the FDA regulated, regulated space. And as you know, uh, any, any medical device or pharmaceutical uh, that is sold in the U.S., falls under the purview of FDA, which is very, very technical. Uh, FDA uses what's called a code of federal regulations, uh, CFR, and there are different, different parts of that, depending on if you're a medical device company or a pharmaceutical. I say that not to be technical, but to say that left to my own intelligence or devices, I would have probably never figured out the code of federal regulations. So I'm the recipient of being able to meet some fantastic people that just kind of showed me the ropes, uh, became mentors, opened some doors for me. And, you know, I had the privilege of, of being able to walk through those doors and, uh, and capitalize on some of those uh, relationships. Explain the business model. What did you guys sell? So in the... Uh, when when Chuck was in the tool shed, um, we uh, we were just we were trying to figure things out. Um, I'm a big believer in just you know I, I I listen fairly well and I don't mind knocking on doors. So I just knocked on a lot of doors, and I found this little uh, niche in healthcare for regulatory you know compliance work. Right, so you know basically. Again, any device or any drug in the U.S. has to go through this very ar- arduous FDA process. And there's a lot of stuff, you know, pre-sale and then, you know, post-sale from a manufacturing standpoint. And I saw this little need in the industry, and this goes back now over 20 years, but there was a, and as I looked at it, and again, I'm, I'm not a doctor and I did not come from healthcare certainly did not work for FDA, but I saw this little need of connecting a very high level of competence to a relational model, right? So in other words, there were a lot of people in the space that knew the code of federal regulations, CFR, very well, and they were very technically astute, but there were gaps uh, in applying the technical, which is similar to law, 
to you know a business owner, uh, a customer, and so there was a, a little bit of a gap right between competence and really application, and I just saw that gap, uh, and so my goal in starting MedPoint was to harness this very high level, very technical, intellectual property, the, the minds of these, you know, FDA and former FDA people to the medical device or pharmaceutical company that, you know, where in the U.S. there's, it's not a, you know, it's not a luxury, it's a requirement. They just have to do things right. So if I've got a, a new prosthetic leg or a new, uh, you know, uh, hearing aid, and I want to bring it to market, I have to get FDA approval for that. Now, if I don't have the staff or the expertise to stick handle through and navigate the FDA licensing uh, sort of labyrinth network, right. I could hire MedPoint. And for a consulting fee, you could help me get my product to market. Am I getting it about right? Yes. Yes, you are. And so one of our early wins, which is a very, very, very large, one of the largest healthcare companies in the world, you know, we had an audience, right? We were able to kind of pitch, this is what we can do. These are some of our capabilities and fills and areas of expertise. Um, actually went to their corporate headquarters and, you know, made the pitch for MedPoint. And the little bit of sliver of hope that they gave me was, look, we part of this compliance, you know, part of the uh, the regulatory landscape, uh, they, ha they had to do audits, you know, when their devices or drugs were going through the manufacturing process, we have to come in, it's part of the requirement to just be audited to make sure they're staying on track with what they've uh, proposed to the FDA, what's been approved. So they looked at me and said, and this is a huge company with tons of resources, but they looked at me and said, okay, we're having trouble completing some of these audits. We'll give you a shot if you can bring some of your people in. And we had a small team at that point, probably 10 auditors. And we came in and they gave us a little piece of their business. And because we did well, and we were trying to figure things out as we went, right? Like a lot of us, we just, sometimes we figure things out on the run, but we got a little sliver of their business and we performed well. And now 18 years later, that client is still with MedPoint and it's mushroomed now into a multi-million dollar customer relationship. Wow. But it started, John, with, I think they gave us about $75,000 worth of business, you know, in that first year, but it gave us a chance to prove ourselves, right? How big was that client? And we're going to, we're going to move, kind of move around a little bit here, but I, I, I know obviously the purpose is to talk about the sale of MedPoint. When you sold MedPoint, what proportion of your annual revenue was that initial client that was now a multi-million dollar contract for you proportionally? Yeah. Really good question, John. Uh, and and I'll, I'll tell you the good and the bad, right? And I think us as business owners, we find ourselves, you know, either in the good soup or the bad soup. Uh, it was good and bad. Number one, they were huge. One of the largest healthcare companies in the world. And for us to get a um, an audience was sort of a miracle, right? You know, back in the early days. Um, the You know, what came along with the good is you never, ever, ever had to worry about their check cashing. <laughs> you know, it, yep. you, could, you could go to your, you know, back in the day when, you know, we did invoices and they would send us a check even before electronic payments, you could go to your mailbox on day 30 and you would have a, you'd have a, a nice large check. That was beautiful. The negative part of that is as we grew that relationship, we did well, but we grew that relationship and we became really, really, really top heavy. Right. So, you know, five, six years ago, 
we had a this very positive customer relationship was a negative on our books because we had a really high level of client concentration. Right. What proportion ballpark? Like oh, God. over 50, over 80? Yeah, probably 82, 83%. Wow. Yeah, like six wow. years ago. And we sat down as a you know, senior management team and we recognized the, you know, again, the beauty is we had millions of dollars coming in from this client. The burden was if we lost that client, you know, we could crumble our infrastructure. Right. It was just, we were just too top heavy with that one particular client. So we had to make we wanted to grow that client to continue going deep and wide. And they gave us more and more business every year, which is great. But we really had to focus on bringing new logos in because we had to dilute that customer concentration just a little bit. And how and by the time you sold, what proportion was it? It was 83, five or six years before selling. We got down to, you know, over still over 50%, but not much over 50%. Got it. Got and, it. And got part it. Of our, I, I'm sorry. No, I, I totally, I totally relate to the logo and knowing that the, the check was going to clear. Funny story. When I was about, oh gosh, I might've been eight or nine years old. My first job was that there was a house across the street from us. My, where my parents lived, and it was a Kodak executive who would be, you know, it brought into Toronto for one year term, and he or she got to live in that house. And so, of course, they didn't want to actually do their lawn work or their yard work, so they had a lawn care service. Now, the lawn care service guy came once a week, but they needed to. Uh, water in the summertime kind of every day to make the grass green. And he didn't want to come back every day. So he, he said, look, I'll give you the job to, to water the lawn every day. And my first check, my first ever job was a $32 check with the Kodak logo on it. Oh, wow. And, 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 you know, it makes me laugh now, gosh, this is 45, six, seven years ago. But, you know, I got that check and my eyes lit up because I could see that logo. I knew it was going to cash. <laughs> Little did I know Kodak was going to go bankrupt years later and so forth. But it's a long-winded, long, stupid story. But but to, only to say that I know the pro and con of a great blue chip client. Yeah. When, yeah. you know, it, you, you can go to the bank with their money literally. And at the same time, if you're not careful, it can, it can extend. So I want to come back to the customer concentration thing when it comes to selling MedPoint. Yes. But, but take me through. So I understand the, the beginning journey uh, where you started, but the business grew, as I understand it, to, maybe close to 200 employees. Have I got that right? Yes. So we had a combination of W-2 employees and, and, and also 1099. Uh, For folks outside of the, of the United States, just, just define W-2 versus 1099? Yeah. So W-2 were salaried employees. We kind of got started with uh, just having uh, contractors, 1099. The beauty of that, we had to do it to survive because Chuck didn't have a lot sure. of cash in the bank. But it, what, it, what that did, John, it helped us to fuel our growth and to scale our business. So in other words, like when this large, you know, blue chip company, uh, which, by the way, is a household name, several years into our relationship with them, they, they asked if we could go and help them internationally. So we became their global partner and we had people all over. You know, we have people all over Europe, all over, all over Asia. And again, it allowed us to kind of grow and to build and to scale without me going to Switzerland and negotiating employment law with, right. Swiss, you know, uh, Swiss national. So it was in retrospect, it was a, it was a really good model to have a combination of employees. And we had a lot of W2 employees and also a big bevy, a big pool of, independent contractors who, by the way, were subject matter experts, right? You know, these were folks that have left FDA or they, you know, used to be at Johnson & Johnson or, or wherever. We could not have afforded to pay them what they were really worth. So they came to us, one of a quick story, early, early, early days of MedPoint. 
uh, I needed a regulatory person. There was a guy who was retiring from Baxter, one of the big healthcare companies in the U.S. Sure. And um, he he can't. This is this is really funny. He came to me and said, "Listen, I just put my 33 years in at Baxter, got the gold watch, but I want to do still got juice in the tank. I want to do a little work on the side. I've got horses and I play golf, and I need some uh, spending money." And uh, his name is Bob. And I said, Bob, I would love to have your credentials on my team. You know, I'm going to pay you by the hour. For every hour you work, I'm going to pay you. He said, Chuck, what are you going to pay me? And I said, well, on this project, I can give you X because I was billing Y. And he said, when are you going to pay me? And I said, I'll pay you when I get paid because I had no, there was no money in the bank, right? And he said, okay, I'll, I'll work for you on the, under those conditions as long as I pick and choose my hours. I said, perfect. That's beautiful. You know, we were just trying to figure things out. When I had this conversation with Bob as he was leaving Baxter, we didn't have a contract in place. But I told him verbally, Bob, I'll never screw your pay. I'll always take care of you. And he was actually flying every week from Chicago to Atlanta because our client was in Atlanta, Kimberly Clark. And we had no contract in place. And on any given month, he had between thirty and forty thousand in credit card receipts from flying, hotel, food, all sure. of that stuff. And he never, ever, ever missed a dime because that was one of our core values. We're never going to screw our client. We're never going to screw our resource. We're just going to do it with high integrity. And that's why twenty years later, you know, Bob's older, Chuck is older. But I could call him right now on his cell phone and he would do a project for us because it's been a 20-year relationship predicated on integrity and trust. It's amazing. And, and it's, it's, it's a very um, uh, admirable uh, way to, to run a business, one where relationships are at the core, kind of Southern, if you'll allow me to use that. Sure. <laughs> that absolutely. You know, absolutely. Uh, in, in a favorable way. And I wonder when it came to the sale of MedPoint, did you have to formalize some of those handshake agreements to make them more contra contractual, if you will? Did you have to put it all in writing for people like Bob? We really had to do that. I mean, I started this company in the tool shed of my garage. I'm not an attorney, but I ended up writing some, you know, basic contracts you know, as we got a few years into our business and we sort of matured, we, we, we sort of grew in our sophistication, but we never left. We never left that first day that Bob came to work for us. Uh, the core, our core value of just doing it right. You know, I always figured we had, we had three customers, you know, we had our employees, we had our consultants around the world and we had our clients. And this is very much a Southern uh, phrase. And we said this internally all the time. We've got to kiss them to their lips bleed, uh, which maybe it's not the most, maybe not the most popular descriptor in, in some of today's society. But we were just so uh, passionate about those three customers. Um, oh, that's so awesome. Kiss them till their lips bleed. Like that's just so good. <laughs> I love that. Well, I've it, never heard that before. Yeah. And, and it might, it might be, it, it truly might be a Southern thing, but we, we just, we wanted to give those three customers everything we had because we knew um, that if we took care of them, they would take care of us. And we never, focused on the dollar. We focused on the deliverable. Chuck, how did your affinity for your business evolve as your company became more formal? Mm, gosh, great question, John. Um, I, it was It was really sort of a a little bit of an internal struggle to be, to be really honest, you know, in when Bob, Bob was my second person on board, right? When Bob and I'm using him as an example, when, when he came on board, 
literally, I said to what I just said a few minutes ago, I'll pay you this. This is the project, blah, blah, blah. Let's get rolling. We did great work together. I like those days. I would love those days of going to Atlanta or Raleigh or Chicago, New York, wherever, taking my guys out, you know, giving them a good supper and a good glass of wine and getting to know their families and their children and the intimacy of those early days. I absolutely loved as we grew, you know, and five people became 15 people that became 50 people that became a hundred people. That relational contact just got more and more diluted and we had to, right? We were growing and we had, we had to, we had to have a bigger operational presence. We had to grow our infrastructure. You know, we became sophisticated in our contracts probably better in our deliverables, you know, because again, we were in a very technical, you know, industry, but I probably, I didn't, it's not like I became disenfranchised or disenchanted with, you know, our company still loved our business, but I really missed those early days of just getting, you know, knowing my people, sure, uh, you know, getting into their heads and their hearts and motivating them and being a part of, again, their families and their, I think it's one of the reasons people feel so sad after selling their business often is because they miss that affinity that they have with people who ultimately become close to family members. They just feel like they've, they've lost a lot of that, which is, which is one of the challenges. I want to go back to this this issue that you raised of customer concentration, if I'm getting the, the, the date right, you sold in 2020. So we're probably kind of 2015 if I'm around around there where you're where you reach this point of 80, 82, 3% of your customer revenue coming from one customer. Right. And I think a lot of people listening to this show probably identify that with that. Maybe not to the extent that they have 83% of their revenue coming from one customer, but it's not uncommon for businesses, smaller businesses to have 20, 30, 40% of their revenue coming from one customer. And I think, you know, they struggle because the things that make that customer uh, relationship so good, the, the fact that you're delivering for them again and again is, is the very reason they keep buying more and more from you. And, and so they say, well, what do you want me to do? Kind of like, you know, under deliver for the customer. So they stop by, of course, of course, that's not the answer. Uh, but some people choose to, to, to stop offering the very highly commoditized products that that customer is buying. So they're only buying sort of high margin stuff. It sounds like you looked at buying or, or selling to other logos was your solution. Can you just explore and expand on how you dropped your customer concentration from 83 down to around 50% and, and, and how you went about that process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I unpack that, obviously, we, we wanted to keep that relationship. It was a great relationship. Uh, again, largest healthcare company in the world. We had, we had really two initiatives as we looked at our client concentration, one, we wanted to go deep and wide within that customer. So instead of only relying on procurement, which is sort of the typical path to a relationship, we wanted to make sure we built uh, relationally on the business side. So in other words, if we hacked off someone in procurement and they said, you know, we no longer like Chuck, for whatever reason, we don't like his hair or whatever, we're going to get rid of MedPoint. If we develop relationships on the business side, and generally on the when you look at procurement versus the business side of any large company, uh, they complement each other, right? They serve each other, they're internal customers, but they, they have slightly different objectives in what they do, right? And the business usually trumps compliance, or usually trumps procurement. Would that be fair to say? Yes, yes. And so there's a tension, right? Procurement typically pays or fuels the the purchase orders, 
um, but they sort of serve at the pleasure of the business. So we wanted to make sure we went deep and wide in both procurement and the business and just create relationships. What we wanted to do for this one particular customer, and really for all of our customers, but we wanted to make ourselves indispensable. That when they looked at MedPoint, they said, they hopefully they would say, you know, we've come too far, we're in too deep, we love these guys. You know, going through a divorce uh, with MedPoint would be very, very, very difficult and painful. It would affect our operations around the world. So we wanted to create that relationship to be so strong that they never, ever wanted to go through a divorce. In particular, with the business unit leaders, I wonder, when you did your SIM, when you sold MedPoint, and I want to get to the sale in a moment, when you did the SIM, the Confidential Information Memorandum, uh, and the specter of this client came up, this customer, did you present your revenue as, you know, uh, from let's just call this hypothetical company. I think we need to be careful not to name them. Sure. ABC Widgets. Did you call? You know, did you say ABC Widgets X revenue, or did you break each division down? So ABC Europe and ABC Americas and ABC uh, Saudi Arabia. Like, did you break them down as almost like they were different customers? So when you presented to acquirers, they appear to be different buyers. Great question. Yes, we did both, right? And to keep full integrity in the process of due diligence, um, we presented this is the aggregate volume that we do. Uh, but then we also broke it down by by division, which is sort of a safe descriptor for this particular company. We broke it down by division because even though even though it was all one huge relationship. They really had buying decisions. Um, we had an MSA master service agreement in place, but you know, under that MSA uh, were separate uh, SOW statement of work, right? And so each division sort of had a lot of autonomy. You know, as with any corporation, there's oversight from corporate and from procurement and that type of thing, but. You know, this particular customer had a lot of autonomy in each division. So we could, and we didn't, but we could have effectively lost one division without losing the other six or seven divisions. Got right? it. What was the second initiative? The second initi initiative really quite simply was, okay, we've got this, you know, we've got this massive client that is respected and known around the world. Uh, let's use that the the quality of our work, the success of our work, to articulate that to other companies, you know, in the medical device and pharmaceutical space. If we've done that over now six, seven, eight, nine years, all those qualities, all of those deliverables, are transportable. We did it for them, and they probably have the highest level of, of uh, scrutiny and expectations. If we've done it for them, we can do it for you. And did you pay a higher commission to your salespeople for getting new logos than if they just got another contract from the giant gorilla that you already were serving? We did essentially do that. Um, if like we, we kind of broke it down. Uh, these are house accounts and Many of the house accounts, maybe nearly all of them initially, were sort of accounts of Chuck. They I secured the relationship. We did business. And then as we brought on salespeople and business development people, uh, we would say, go out and, and, you know, sort of a hunter farmer mentality, go out and hunt new logos. Uh, we've got this one taken care of. You know, we're you know, we're grooming that customer inside internally, uh, go out and find new logos. So our operational people, uh, we had a, a huge team, still do, of project managers, and they were really our relationship managers for that client, right? So they were tasked and compensated for growing that relationship internally. So it was, it. thank goodness, 
fortunately for the business, it metamorphosed away from it being the Chuck show to this is a this is MedPoint, a big partner. We're a worldwide partner now um, for this one company, one customer as, long, as, as well as others. Right. It was not just Chuck selling an account. It was a company bringing a product offering to the table. You know, the reason we do the show is to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. And the last thing you want is to succumb to an earnout where the majority of your proceeds are at risk in the form of a future payment contingent on you hitting a certain set of goals in the future. All of the risk is on your shoulders, none on the acquirer. And that's what we want to avoid. How do you do that? Well, one of the ways you can do that is make sure that your business can thrive without you at the helm. We put together a checklist. It's called the Self-Managing Business Checklist. It's a set of things that you need to think through and get done in order to get your business running without you. Just go to builttosell.com slash checklist for a free copy. Again, that's builttosell.com slash checklist for a free copy. Now back to the show. And what did you do... To, I mean, Chuck, you strike me as a very uh, warm personality, someone who is is great with relationships and and would be a natural, you know, instill natural confidence in a, in a client. What did you do to take what's in your head, the way you were raised? Uh, I mean, I listened to another podcast you were on where your, your dad did the hand test. And if you could, you could see your hand, uh, it was light enough in the day, uh, you know, it was 4.30 in the morning or whatever it was. But if you could see your hand, it was, it was early enough to start working. Like those sorts of values, which I'm sure resonate uh, hard work and being a man of your word and so forth resonate enormously with customers. How did you, though, translate your skills and get other people to do the selling because I'd imagine it's hard to sort of replicate yourself in that way. What did you do to try to get and teach your young salespeople how to sell without you? Really, really two things, John, we, um, and, and most of my success in life, uh, did not come from the inner workings of my mind. Most most of my, most of my success came out where I've just borrowed brains. Right. So early in my career, uh, I was for, I was very fortunate to be hired by just a fantastic company, and they taught me the power of uh, making sure you vet your employees or your associates very carefully. So we were really, really, really careful. And now, 200 people later, we still use that same model. We hire people like us. They don't have to. Everyone looks better than Chuck. That's a no-brainer. But we hire people that have that same value structure, uh, that have that same integrity. So the hiring process is critical. It, it was critical for us. It's critical for any company in the world to be. How do you how do you evaluate people if they're like you? I mean, do you have a personality test? I mean, what's because people are hearing that and say, yeah, but how do you, how do I know if they're like us? Like, is it just a gut feel, or do you have some way of objectively measuring if they're like you? Yeah, so we ran uh, all employees, all contractors through a battery of uh, you know objective tests, subjective tests. We looked at. Uh, you know, personality profiling. There are a number of good. Which, yeah, which one did you like the best? I think one of the best, and I, it was cost prohibitive to do it across the board. But the predictive index um, was actually, I think, designed back in the fifties. It's kind of a NASA product. <laughs> um, you know, if I were to, if I were to give it to you, I it would tell me what kind of car you drive. I mean. Like, what's going on? You know, crazy kind of stuff. But we use tools like that, uh, Myers Briggs, um, different tools like that to really sort of, uh, you know, get a good read on a person's skill sets. Because, you know, we were 
we, we were growing and rocking and rolling, you know, tremendous growth. And we wanted to be really careful who we brought into that family because, you know, our employees, our operational team, our salespeople, they became a lot of times the first line of defense, you know, with a customer or a prospect. So we were really, really careful. Um, we used a lot of team interviewing and we, we were fortunate as we grew to have a lot of uh, opportunity to do volunteer work. Um, I'm a big believer, play hard, work hard. We work our tails off and then we go and have a great bottle of wine and we get to know people at a sort of at a core level. But that vetting was was uh, was was just super super important. How big did you get MedPoint before you decided to sell? We were certainly north of uh, five million, approaching the ten million dollar mark in terms of annual revenue. In terms of annual revenue, yep. Got it, got it. And and what triggered you to want to sell? Was there some sort of like straw that broke the camel's back? Well. There were really two things, John. One, um, on a personal level, I went through a very difficult divorce um, after a long 28-year marriage. And, you know, it just, uh, it, it really kind of took me to the sideline there for a while. Um, one really cool thing, one of my senior managers, when I was in the, you know, in the midst of this four-year divorce, which was so incredibly distracting, right? Um, you sort of get hit upside the head with a two by four. Uh, one of my senior managers came to me and she put her arm around me and she said, Chuck, we love you. And we know you're going through hell. You take care of Chuck and we'll take care of the business. And that gave me the opportunity, John, to some days look at a blank wall or some days to walk around the lake. It gave me time to heal and to gain perspective back. Thank God I came through that chapter and I'm a better person as a result of it. Um, so the, it was just a, it was a personal reason, a personal motivation. And then more importantly, it was a, it was really a pro, the professional time. It was, it was a time for me to sell because I really feel really felt like I had taken the company as far as I could take it. I, I was already driving beyond my headlights and I knew that fresh leadership, um, you know, could afford the company to go from where we were to the next level to a $25 million company. And I was probably not the one most qualified to take the company on that journey, but it was my, it was my baby. I had built it from literally the tool shed. Um, but it was time. It was time to send that kid off to college. That makes sense. I, you know, I've heard the, you know, exit planners talk about the four D's to divorce, disability, et cetera. And I've never really, I understood why divorce is such a common trigger of business sale. My assumption is that two things. One, it's a traumatic life event and it causes you to reevaluate everything. Practically though, you've got to write your spouse a check for half of the wealth you built together. Much of the wealth is in the company and and that's a big check to write if you built a successful business. Am I getting the am I getting it right in terms of the the two uh, you know qualitative and quantitative sort of triggers why divorce is such a common trigger for sale of a business? Yeah, I think for depending on the you know the the company, the structure, the the team, right? I was fortunate. Probably I think I've been I've been more fortunate than the average bear in my whole life, my whole 59 years of living. But I was very fortunate in this case that I had a great team. So I, I didn't have to run the business on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, not to get into, not to get into the divorce settlement, but again, I was very fortunate that I kept a hundred percent of my business 
you know, through the divorce, um, which again is sort of a philosophical bent in life. We started the business 20 years, 22 years ago with a depression era mindset. Um, we never borrowed money. You know, we had a credit line, but we, we sort of did everything without debt. Um, I'm very frugal generally in my life. So we sort of ran everything from a depression era mindset. So, you know, working through the divorce, building the team, growing, we were always really, really careful with cost because, you know, I feel like the more debt, I don't just not to be philosophical, but the more debt you have, the more, uh, you have to answer to, to a bank, to, a, you know, sure. VC firm or, or whatever, ex-wife in my case. Uh, so I wanted to maintain control. I wanted to run the business, uh, you know, from a frugal standpoint, uh, but also to be in a position that I, I was not uh, a slave to anything outside of my own capabilities. I don't know if that makes sense. It's It does. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does for sure. And and I'm curious to know what you did next. So you have this, you go through this divorce and you have this epiphany that you're driving beyond your, your headlights and you're not the right guy to go take it to 25. So did you market it? Did you hire an, like an M&A professional? Like what was the next step practically that you took? Yeah. So two years before, uh, prior to us selling, we were not on the market, sort of just crazy, unsolicited, you know, very small private equity firm uh, knocked on the door one day and they said, Chuck, we know the space you're in. We love your company. You know, are you interested in selling? I don't know. I don't know if I am or not. Long story. They said, we'd like to offer you, you know, X. So we got an LOI in place, letter of intent, and we started some due diligence talks and as, as we got involved in that, I realized this is probably just not going to work for a multitude of reasons. Ultimately, I didn't like their term, the term sheet. So I said, what did you like about the term sheet? Uh, it was, it was, uh, it was really heavy or heavier than I wanted on seller financing. Right. Uh, I was looking for a really clean deal. I wanted most of the cash. Uh, I didn't want to earn out, you know, so the, the terms just didn't make sense for me. Do you remember what proportion of the price was was in seller financing, what they were proposing you would effectively carry? Yeah, they were around 70%. Wow. Of I'm sorry, 70% uh, cash, 30%. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Seller okay, I thought you were going to say the other way around. Okay, seventy percent cash, thirty percent uh, seller financing. Yep, and got it. I just got didn't it. Feel it at the end of the day when the dust settled. And these were good guys, but it just didn't didn't feel right. Didn't make sense. Yeah, but what that did, John, it was great. I mean, it took time to go through all that process, but what it did, uh, the good news and the bad news was the good news. I went to my senior management team, a group of five incredible rock star human beings. And I said, the good news is we are sellable. <laughs> the bad news is we ain't there yet. You know? Uh, so we spent the next two years, we turned over every stinking rock in the company, everything. We looked at everything. Did Not they have skin company. in the game? Did, were they shareholders or some sort of bonus tied to the sale? Like what was in it for them? Yeah. So at that, at that first offer, right, that I did not take, you know, one of the things that we looked at was, okay, we're sellable. I need to make sure we, we, keep, we keep the posse in place. So one of the things that we did in the next two years is we put a retention bonus for the senior management team that just said, look, you know, you get, upon the sale of the business, you'll get X. And you know, it was based on their level of responsibility and their tenure, tenure and that, that type of thing. But we turned over every rock for the next two years. And then when we sort of officially went to market, we hired a broker who did a good job. Uh, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He brought 
he, he vetted inquiries and brought, we actually had five offers. Hmm. Uh, it took him about, I don't know, six or eight months to sort of get his engine all fired up because we had a little bit of a complex business, you know, not, not easily understood. So he had to sort of get his arms around what we did so he could communicate the value and our value proposition, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, as he got his mojo, got into the groove, he brought me five offers and they were all good offers. You know, what was the range and multiple between the five offers? Like what was the low and what was the high? The ballpark low was probably three, nine, maybe four times uh, uh, EBITDA times EBITDA. Mm-hmm. And it went all the way to, you know, between five and six. So that was sort of the range. So as I went through that process, it was, you know, it was days of frustration because, you know, we're, we're trying to interpret, uh, interpret five letters of intent, right. And make a good decision. I met with all five of those would be buyers. Uh, We had dinner and wine together. So I wanted to know their, um, their goals for my company. This was my baby. These were my people. And Chuck made a lot of mistakes in those 20 years, but I was damn proud of my people and I wanted to protect them. So I looked at who, who will set us up for success in the future, the best. And one of those, uh, to me, very important are, uh, you know, the, the goals, the values, uh, the beliefs, you know, of the buyer and will they mesh, you know, with, you know, with my people and will they take care of my people? And so we actually, I did not take the highest offer Hmm. um, because that cultural fit was so important to me uh, and the, the continuance of care for my employees and my clients. Very, very, very important to me. So I think we ended up going with the second highest offer, but great terms. Uh, and what were the terms that beyond the, the so the, the the multiple, as I understand, was, I think we talked about off, was sort of in the five to six range times EBITDA. What other terms were there that were important to you that they, they offered? I did not want an earnout. That was <laughs> that was important, and initially that was on the table, and you know we we worked through that. And I will say this of the private equity firm that bought me, and by the way, those guys are doing great. I think they have about fifteen companies in their portfolio, and now two and a half years later, uh, they, I can say, are friends of mine. We dated, and then. We went through the transaction and they are friends of mine, which is really cool, man. Right. You know, not mm-hmm. many, it's great. not many sellers can say that. How did you convince them not to accept an earnout? Cause I think everybody would love to avoid an earnout, but, uh, especially given the customer concentration and the fact that it was Chuck's client and blah, blah, blah. Like I can imagine if I was buying it, I'd be like, I, we need to lock Chuck in big time. So how did you convince them that? That they didn't need an earnout, that they, they should pay cash. Um it it really was in it it was sort of textbook, John, in that the discussions, the rapport, the trust was so prevalent, right, in those early, you know, in those early discussions. Um, and this is not always the case. Again, I'm 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 a I'm a fortunate man, but they took on themselves the goal of making Chuck happy. And, you know, and again, going back to my depression era mindset, um, you know, I wanted to, to mitigate my risk from a, you know, from a return exposure. And I think they understood that they, they understood where my fears and concerns were. So one of the, the beautiful things that we did is we, we, we just rolled up our sleeves. We, we probably had a couple bourbons and we just said, look, what, what are the goals, right? We have the, 
the goals of the private equity firm and we have Chuck, how can we make both teams, both sides win, which I think is the ultimate essence of negotiating, right? Make sure both sides win. And, you know, for me, not having an earn out because I wanted to mitigate my risk from a return standpoint, but also, you know, I wanted health benefits for my family. Um, I wanted a, I wanted a salary that I could count on. So we negotiated a, a four-year employment agreement uh, with health benefits. So it was kind of the best of both worlds. Um, I went through the exit. Uh, I'm very much involved, right, in the company. I kept uh, a piece of the action. So I'm an equity player uh, in the growth and the, the future of the business. How much did you roll? Um, 7%. Seven? Yep. Yeah, just less than 10 Right. Got it. And so it just it sort of met my personal needs, right? Of taking care of my family, having some guaranteed income, you know, having, uh, you know, having the cash, largely cash, uh, you know, up, up front. Uh, I love the term. The term sheet was great. Sounds clean. Yeah. Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Because I want to, uh, I want to respect your time, and I want to yeah, get absolutely. your answer to a couple of, of questions. Are, are you, uh, you, good to jump into a couple? Absolutely. All right. What's the most questionable or slimy trick that an acquirer has tried to play on you? Mm. I had not in these batch of five, right? Uh, because. You know, my broker did a good job in vetting out the knuckleheads of the world. Um, <laughs> but somewhere in that between the first one and this group of five, I had, uh, again, somebody unsolicited sort of came to me directly and they wanted to give me 30 around the third, 33 percent of the enterprise value and for me to finance two thirds. And I said, look, dude, I have. I have no issue with cannabis, but you're smoking dope and I'm not going to listen to that, you know, that BS. Biggest mistake, biggest mistake you made in the selling of your company. Hmm. Great question. I think it, um, it was a little bit distracting to a degree. Um, and, and we were fortunate. Again, I, I use that term not to not to overuse it, but I, I was very fortunate. Our due diligence only lasted about seven months because we were just rock solid tight. But did you say seven months? Like seven. half a year? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, our that, deal size probably. I can't believe you used the word only before you said seven <laughs> months. People are looking at that going, "What? Seven months?" <laughs> well, it it probably. Because again, you know, we had a lot to unpack, but we were so tight. It probably on our deal size would have been ten to twelve months um, in in due diligence. But we were tight, so it it took a lot less time than that. Uh, but it was also distracting. I, I probably could have done more to you know just keep the company driving hard. Although my people were doing that, they were focused, plugged in. We kept an appropriate level of confidence and confidentiality, you know, in the process. But I probably could have done more to kind of get into the weeds uh, on one hand and continue growing the business on the other. I think it's a common mistake that a lot of us make. Yeah. What was the lowest emotional point you reached during the selling process? I can tell you this. Um, you know, we, we, we went through, it didn't hit me until after the transaction, after closing. And it was really crazy. I'll, I'll tell you this story really quick. The day of closing, which is a day of celebration, right, for most sellers, the managing partner, who again has become my friend, he was in my home a month ago, uh, and we shared a good meal together. Uh, but he called me that afternoon. And I'll never forget this call. He said, Chuck, we just left the bank. Check your bank account. You'll be happy with. And I, of course, I knew what was coming in. Right. But, you know, he said, I want to just tell you that how proud I am of what you've built. 
And I want to take what you've built and we want to grow it and make it even better. And I said, John, that's fantastic. That's my goal. And I hung up the phone and went up and helped my wife pack the boxes because we were moving. The hardest part came two weeks later as we were working through our administrative items. And I got a two line memo that I had to sign off on. And that memo simply said, I, Chuck Crumpton, effective this date, resign as CEO of MedPoint. And John, I, I broke down. I sat at my desk and I cried because I was no longer the man in charge. I had turned my baby over to be raised by someone else. And emotionally, that was tough, man. That was tough. Yeah, I've got kids leaving for university soon, and it it is a um, it's a moment I'm not looking forward to because I think in a similar way it's going to feel very similar watching them go off to uh, a campus somewhere, feeling like there you go, I've you know they're they're gone. I I can imagine how must how how difficult it must be to to sign away adoption papers, you know, and and just unimaginable circumstances where you're literally giving away your child. Like it's, it's hard to even imagine that. And, but you, you had to do it with your company, which is the closest thing for a lot of owners to a child. So, um, thank you for sharing that on the flip side. What was the highest point for you emotionally in the process of selling your company? Going to our corporate office one day and not being able to get in. <laughs> now, that sounds really funny, right? And not because they locked me out, but we had grown so much. We had so many new employees. They were all the employees were in a training session and they had the front door locked. And I knocked on the door because they, they didn't want to be interrupted because they had all kinds of presentations going on. I knocked on the door. One of the new employees who I had not met opened the door and said, oh, are you bringing us lunch today? Are you the pizza man? <laughs> and, That's awesome. Yeah. And I said, I just started laughing. And I said, no, I'm, I'm actually, you know, dropping by to say hello. And she's like, now, who are you? And I said, I'm, I'm Chuck Crumpton. And, but, you know. And, and we, we just had this culture that, you know, we had a very flat philosophical, you know, philosophical yeah. culture that, you know, my job was no more important than, than her job. Right. But it was so cool to see this little company that started in the tool shed 20 years earlier had just grown up to have all these wonderful people, you know, and this young lady was just an example of this growth that I had little to do with. That's so funny. What resources can you point people to, to help them educate themselves about the process of selling a company? You know, sometimes I equate it uh, to Sully, the, you know, the, the air pilot, airline pilot who landed the plane on the Hudson River. There's no playbook for doing that, right? Like they don't teach you that in flight school. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, there's no playbook for selling. It's not like there's lots of resources for how do you start a business? How do you market a business? How do you grow it? Blah, blah, blah. But very little out there for how to sell. So I'd be curious, could you point people to any resources, a, a book, an audio, a, a conference they could attend, anything that would be helpful? Yeah, I would say, and, and I mean this sincerely, John, you've got one of the best podcasts in the world. Um, what, and, and, I, and I mean that I'm not saying it because I'm, I'm talking to you, your <laughs> podcast is amazing. I, I learn, and I've been in business for a long, long time. I, every week I listen to your podcast and I learn something that I didn't know. Um, oh, if you're, yeah, and that's really straight up. If you're, and I'm speaking to that potential seller out there, uh, meet people, read you know, the difference that your life will make in the next five years are the people you meet and the books that you read. Become a sponge. 
listen to Built to Sell, listen to other podcasts focused on, you know, business growth and, you know, exit strategies. And what you'll find, and there are, fortunately, there are tons of resources, right? There are people, we do, we now do symposiums and workshops on how to exit or how to, what do you think about exiting and all of that kind of stuff. Surround yourself with all of these, and there are tons, tons and tons and tons. Just become a sponge and soak all of that in. And what you'll find, you'll get, you'll get phenomenal information, like the stuff that you disseminate. You'll get some really shitty information, <laughs> right? Because there are a lot of charlatans out there. But what will happen is when you start compiling the good stuff from your podcast and, and similar podcasts, and then the stuff that's just pure sheer crap, when you start compiling that, you'll be able to work through it because you have so many bullets in your gun. You'll be able to work through it and you'll be able to say, you know what, that resonates with me, that doesn't resonate with me, that fits my model, that doesn't fit my model. That I can tell, I can sense that broker, you know, that uh, M&A professional knows what they're doing, they care, they, there's caring competence, or he or she is just out to, to earn, you know, to earn a success for you or whatever. As you pull in, as you gather, gather data, you'll be able to develop a gut. Uh, and again, you'll weed, you'll vet out some of the stuff, some of the riffraff from the people that are doing it right. Last question. What trophy did you buy yourself to commemorate <laughs> the win? Oh. You know, in, in our case, because we closed during COVID, which I will say, I, I, I try to give all the credit to other people because in most every case, everybody, you know, other people deserve the credit more than I do. But we closed during COVID and that's a testament to the private equity firm, right? Because they had to do a lot of their stuff uh, via Zoom. And, you know, we had a couple of meetings on site and everybody had to separate, you know, set very separately. And it was, it was difficult d during, sure. during COVID. We, the day, the day that we sold, the day we closed, July 1st of 2020, uh, there were a couple other events in my life. Um, we sold the company. I sold my old house and we bought a new house all on the same day. <laughs> and you're a glutton for punishment. Yeah, that's what uh, <laughs> my friends at the private equity said. You know, Chuck, are you like a Sadie Masky? Like what with the. What are you thinking? But so we had three big events in one day, July 1st of 2020, and my wife and I had COVID. So we had to move out of our old house before we could move in the new house. We had to live in a hotel. We had to be sequestered in the hotel room because we were sick with COVID. And that's a really long answer to your question, man. But, you know, our trophy really uh was moving my guns and my underwear from the hotel to the new house without without getting arrested or shot and you know just it it's sort of been a perpetual trophy in that it's afforded me the luxury to give back and which is something I love doing I love making a difference and you know selling medpoint gave me that luxury of being able to help other companies go through that process and do it with integrity and do it with success, do it with a great return on all that hard work and sacrifice. It's such um, a good point. I did and order, it, I, I'll tell you this really quick. I did order a car. Um, What'd you get? Uh, a Mercedes uh, SUV. Now, nice. I ordered it, but it hasn't come in yet. So I don't know if that will be a 2023 or 2024 celebration, but a little bit of delayed gratitude. Because awesome. My car is being built somewhere in the world. I have no idea where. But. <laughs> it's nice to have a physical uh, That's right. reminder of, of the achievement. Uh, well, Chuck, I really appreciate you sharing the story with us. Um, Tell folks, tell folks what you're up to now and where, you know, where can they reach you? If is, are you a LinkedIn guy or more of like, what's the best way for folks to, uh, to find you? 
Yeah, LinkedIn is great. Um, got a really good community there. Uh, part of this, maybe part of the trophy, has been this uh, afforded time to kind of catch my breath. Uh, still a lot of juice in the tank, so took a little time off. Uh, we got a little puppy. His name is Bo, but we call him Shithead. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, just taking some time off, and you know, I took I took uh, about a year off, and we started a company doing M and A uh, and building. Really focused on the building to get business owners ready to go to market and stuff, and that's been a lot of fun uh, because it's basically helping companies go through or business owners go through what I went through and maybe to save them some heartache and stuff like that. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation between John and Chuck. If you did, be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you're not, if you love today's episode, then share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly enjoy today's conversation. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the blog article, which I mentioned on a cool hiring strategy, go ahead and visit the show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the chance to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagula for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.